This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the ESV Scripture Journal. Each ESV Scripture Journal pairs the entirety of an individual book of the Bible with lightly lined blank pages opposite each page of Bible text, allowing readers to take extended notes or record insights and prayers directly beside corresponding passages of Scripture. These thin, portable notebooks are great for personal Bible reading and reflection, small group study, writing out extended portions of scripture, or taking notes through a sermon series. Pick up an ESV scripture journal wherever Bibles are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear from Mike Kruger on Can I Lose My Faith? Understanding Apostasy. This message was originally given at TGC's 2021 Women's Conference. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Great to see you here. Let me begin by welcoming you to this session. My name is Mike Kruger. I'm the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you are in a session entitled, Can I Lose My Faith? Understanding Apostasy. And this session is actually sponsored by my own seminary. So that's easy enough, right? So Reformed Theological Seminary is a sponsor, grateful for them, and uh, just such a wonderful place that I've loved working at for the last 20 years. We have a booth here. You can come say hello to us, check out our website, rts.edu, but I just want to thank them for sponsoring this session. Let me also begin by commending you for actually just being here today. I thought when I looked at the schedule, I was like, I wonder what slot I have, and I found I'm in the very last slot of the day. And then I'm like, and so I've got this very difficult, weighty, heavy topic of apostasy. I was thinking to myself, there's going to be like eight people here, but you showed up, so well done. In fact, I was talking to my wife, Melissa, who you know is the director of women's initiatives and sort of is behind this whole conference. And I said to her, I said, well, you know, I don't know how I got asked to do apostasy. And then I don't even know how I got put in the last slot. How did that all happen? And she goes, well, I did that. So... I thought, well, wow, we need to talk more or something. I I thought it would pay off more to know someone in charge, but apparently not. But here we are. But I'm excited about this topic, not because it's a light, fluffy topic, but because it's an important, uh, weighty topic for us to consider. I trust that you're here because you agree with that, and I think there's a lot on our plate that I am eager to get to. So thanks for being here. I hope your brains aren't jello yet um, because we have some uh, important things to get through. 
Because it's so weighty, though, I feel like I should open in prayer. So let me do that. Join me as we pray and just ask God to bless our conversation. Lord, we're so grateful to have a chance to ponder not just light things, but weighty things that your word brings to our attention. So Lord, we ask your blessing now as we ponder some of these things. Help us understand this theme of apostasy. Encourage us today, even in the midst of many reasons to be discouraged, as we see it happen all around us, and reassure us that you love us and that the Spirit is in our own hearts. So we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So when I start with a rather unusual question this afternoon, whatever happened to Susan Pevensey? Whatever happened to Susan Pevensey? Now, of course, you recognize the name, Susan Pevensey. She is part of the family in the Chronicles of Narnia, part of four children, right? The sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, so to speak. They are the four kings and queens of Narnia, and Susan is one of those. And maybe you, like me, are fans of the books, and maybe you, like me, love the the last battle, right, which is the consummate end to the entire series for Lewis. But did you notice, and I'm sure you did, because everyone did, what happened to Susan? Because when you get to the end, she's not there. In fact, it's this jarring omission in the story, one that everyone sort of notices and thinks, how could someone so central, so core to the whole story of Narnia and Aslan, one of the kings and queens themselves, not be there in the end? What happened to Susan? Peter picks up the story as Lewis tells it. My sister Susan, answered Peter, shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you try to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you still think about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Now here's what happens. You read the story of the last battle and you see that part and you don't really know what to do with it so you sort of skip over it and just pretend you didn't read it but it raises important theological questions it raises questions about our own understanding of salvation and about heaven and about who's going to be there when we get there just like that scene in the last battle and of course it raises this very important truth that we all know which is that some people start out seeming like they're christians they seem like they're following jesus and at some point they stop. And they regard it now all as silly and ridiculous and no longer worthy of their attention. So they seem to be on the trajectory of faith, but at some point along the way, for whatever reason, they stop going down that pathway and they change directions. That is the story of Susan Pevensey. I mean, you can't imagine anybody more in the inner circle of Aslan than her. She's going one way, but then somewhere she decides, you know what, that's all just silly stories I'm not sure I believe that anymore. Now, in the theological world, we have a word for that. It's a word we don't use that much in sort of our normal parlance around church and in the Christian world, but that word, of course, is apostasy. And I'm going to get to the definition in more detail in a moment, but in the short version, apostasy is just referring to an individual that was once in and then later out. And when I say in, what I mean is inside the visible church, inside the body of believers, they seem to be a Christian and later prove themselves not to be. 
And that is the theme, of course, before us this afternoon. Now, I would imagine that everybody in this room probably, as I told that definition of apostasy, I imagine you have someone in your head. Every single one of us, statistically speaking, probably knows someone who would count as an apostate, maybe a family member, or maybe a friend, a co-worker, maybe someone you went to college with that you thought was a Christian, and they seemed to believe what you believed, and then later they turned and went in an entirely different direction, and it raises questions in your mind. I can still remember in my own life, I've known several people that would probably count in this category, but most notably was my own youth pastor growing up, taught us the Bible and preached the Word of God to us and led us on youth retreats and was there as our shepherd and teacher and seemed like an all-around good guy and off to college I went and as I went off to college I heard later that he had decided he didn't believe any of that anymore and he rejected the faith and turned away and I found that he left his wife and left his kids and embraced a whole new direction of life and became effectively an apostate. Now, as you think about that theological category, I know what questions are in your mind because they're the same questions in my mind, in everybody's mind, who knows somebody who's gone through that. And they're questions like, well, why didn't I see it coming? How, do I didn't, how is it that I didn't know this person wasn't a true believer? Or maybe you're wondering, how did they not know whether they were a true believer? Or did they know and they just suppressed it? How do I handle all of this? And then there's another question that usually pops into your mind after that, which is, okay, I have all these questions about my friend who apostates or who apostatized, but, but what about me? How do I know if I'm a true believer? If they could be mistaken, maybe I could be mistaken. I mean, think about it for a moment. Apostasy can sort of rattle your little Christian world that's usually nice and tidy and can shake it up pretty rapidly. And then add to that that in our modern day, now we have a whole cottage industry popping up of former Christians, now apostates, who seem like it's now their life mission to tell their story of apostasy to just about everyone who will listen, and now you have a whole sort of world out there of people who have deconverted, if you will, and are now trumpeting it in social media for all to hear. I mean, we could tell story after story of a famous author, a famous Christian pastor, a well-known speaker or musician who wakes up one day and sends out something on social media and says, you know what, I don't believe that anymore. Just like Susan Pevensey. Those are all funny childhood stories that now I find silly and ridiculous. And I imagine if we wanted to in this time, we could probably name all the names that I know in your head right now of stories you've read online. It's remarkable that some people who didn't seem that concerned about being evangelistic when they were professing Christians, now that they're professing non-Christians, seem very evangelistic about that and seem to want to bring as many people with them as they possibly can. That's a rather new phenomenon, by the way. It's not like deconversion is new. That's been around since the beginning. What you realize, though, is that now there's this sort of evangelizing the found problem, right, where people now want to bring as many people down the deconversion path as they possibly can can. So this is why this room is filled today with you, because I'm sure you've experienced all these same questions and challenges and issues, and we all want to sort of cut through the confusion and bring some clarity to the matter. So how are we going to do that? Here's what I want to do in our short time today. I want to walk through this issue of apostasy in sort of three steps with you. First, I want to talk about definition a little more precisely in a moment. I want to make sure you've got it right, I've got it right, we know exactly what we mean when we talk about apostasy. And then after laying out a definition, secondly, I want to give some clarifications. 
some nuance, some talk around it and how that affects our lives. And then thirdly, I want to talk about how we respond to the, the whole phenomenon of apostasy, both out there and more importantly, perhaps in here. Okay, let's dive right in, starting with the definition of apostasy. And I've given you one a little bit already, but I want to bore down a little more deeply into this. And one of the things I've noticed over the years when you define things is that sometimes it's most useful to start by saying what they're not. So I want to start by saying what apostasy is not. And there's several things that I think we confuse apostasy with, but I just want to make sure we're not doing that in our time together today. So what is apostasy not? First, an apostate is not just a non-Christian. This is something that sometimes people get confused by. There's plenty of non-Christians in the world. There's plenty of people in the world out there that don't believe in Jesus. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your coworker. Perhaps it's a person just in a foreign land that's never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. There's plenty of unbelievers in the world, people that don't trust in Jesus for salvation. But we don't call them apostates. Yes, they're non-Christians. Yes, they're unbelievers. But that's the category they belong in. They don't belong in the category of apostasy, as we'll see. That's a separate, distinct phenomenon. So an apostate is not just a non-Christian out there somewhere. Second thing an apostate is not is it's not just a non-Christian inside the church. Now, here's the reality that we all know. Yes, there's non-Christians sort of out there in the world. That's obvious. We also know that even inside the church, there's non-Christians. What I mean by that is there's people in the church that think they're Christians, but in fact are not Christians. And they don't find out until Judgment Day, when we think of a passage like Matthew 7, where Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, those people we also do not call apostates. There's a reason we don't call them apostates, because we don't know who they are, right? If there's a person in your church that that thinks they're a Christian and professes a Christian, you don't know that they're not, in fact, a Christian, so you have no way to know that they're not, and it's not until they die and go to heaven and face judgment that they may even themselves realize they're not. Okay, so an apostate is not just a non-Christian inside the church that's unaware of it. Now, of course, once they become aware of it and leave the church, as you'll see, that's when they become an apostate, but they're not an apostate just simply by being a non-Christian inside the church. Here's a third thing an apostate is not. An apostate is not just a struggling Christian. We have plenty of those too. I'm sure all of us in this room at some level or another struggle in the Christian life. We struggle with what we believe. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we're caught in sin. Sometimes we're really doing things we know we shouldn't do. And so this is what we would call sort of the backsliding Christian, right? But just because there's a Christian who struggles or doubts or questions or is caught in sin, that does not make them an apostate. I mean, King David's a good example of this, right? King David, of course, had a very, very serious time of backsliding, if we can even use that word, which included adultery, murder, other things, of course, in his life. But again, as as deeply sinful as all those things were, David still, from what we can tell, was genuinely a believer in God and later ended up coming to grips with all those awful things that he had done, but he was not, in fact, an apostate. Okay, so if those are all the things an apostate isn't, as we still think about this first point of definition, then what is an apostate? And here's where I want to give you a more concrete definition, something you can sort of hopefully wrap your eyes around or your mind around a little more concretely. So an apostate is this, someone who seemed to be a believer, who is part of Christ's visible church, 
participated in the community of faith, probably even was baptized and takes the Lord's Supper, and then later rejects Christ, turns away from sound teaching, and leaves the Christian community. Now, when you think about that definition, you can whittle it down to one basic idea, and that is an apostate is someone who was once inside and then later is outside. And this is the essence of apostasy. Apostasy is someone who was once in, and by in I mean inside the visible church, professing faith, seeming to be a believer. They were once part of the community of faith and then left the community of faith. And this is why all those other people don't count as apostates. Unbelievers were never part of the community of faith, right? A person who just is a non-Christian and doesn't know it never leaves the faith. A person who's just simply backsliding, well, he's still part of the faith, he just hasn't come to grips with his own sin yet. But that's not what an apostate is. An apostate is someone who was once on the outside, wakes up like Susan Pevensey and says, this is all kind of silly. I don't think I believe this anymore. And they leave. Now, of course, as you know, the Bible has examples of apostasy. We don't have time, of course, to go through them in this talk. I'll mention a couple obvious ones here as we think about this definition. The most obvious example, the poster child of apostasy we all would know is the person of Judas. There's perhaps no better example of an insider who became an outsider. How do you get more inside than the 12? You're Jesus' closest circle. You're his best friends. You received all his teaching, all his counsel, all his ministry all his love, all his care, and yet at some point you decide, I will have nothing to do with this man. In fact, I will sell him down the river for 30 pieces of silver. How does that happen? But it's the perfect example of apostasy. It's someone who was in and then is later out, who seemed to be a believer and proved not to be. Now, we'll talk more about Judas's example later because he raises other intriguing questions about these sorts of things. But for now, you just know that is the classic example of apostasy. In the New Testament, of course, we all know his, his life ends up tragically in, in suicide. In the Old Testament, I imagine we could look at King Saul as a good example of apostasy, right? Talk about your consummate insider, the king of Israel. How do you get more inside than that? And he had all the credibility, all the pedigree, all the lineage, all the credentials you could possibly want to prove that he would be the great, perfect king. Even looked the part, tall, imposing, handsome, good looking. He was the guy, surely he would take Israel down the path it would go. And God knew all along that despite all those outward things, that Saul was not a man after his own heart. And, of course, you know the story. Eventually, there's cracks in the facade, and you begin to realize something isn't right here. And Saul goes off the rails, too, and ends up, ironically, in a place just like Judas committing suicide. Now, the classic example here of apostasy in the New Testament in terms of a a statement is probably from 1 John 2.19. You've heard it. Maybe you've read it and just went right past it. But here's what it says. John is writing about these people who were... Uh, once in and then were out and they were heretics. And he says basically this, quote, they went out from us for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, he doesn't use the word, it's our word, but the word is again apostasy. Okay, so there's our definition. And the whole point there is to round out what it isn't what it is. But now I think, and you have it in your head, there's all these circulating 
questions in your mind. Like, well, I've still got 50 more questions, Mike. I mean, are we going to get to those? Yes, a little of them anyway. And that's our second point here. The first point was definition and now some clarifications. And I know what's in your mind because it's in my mind too. It's in everybody's mind who thinks about this issue. And so let me just walk through some important nuance and clarifications about apostasy so that we make sure that we're understanding it rightly. And I'm going to start with this first clarification just to get it on the table. And I think we all know it, but it just needs to be said. And it's simply this. True believers cannot lose their salvation. I want to start with that clarification because it's so important. You'll notice that we're using language like leave the faith, inside, outside, falling away, these sorts of things. And I understand how confusing that can be. You might think, are, are we suggesting that someone can be really converted and really regenerated and really saved and then later somehow not be? I mean, aren't we people who believe that if you're really genuinely in God's hands that you stay there and are forever safe? And the answer is resoundedly yes. Make no mistake about it. Apostasy is not someone losing their salvation. Apostasy is not someone losing their salvation. It's someone who reveals that they were never saved in the first place. And this is an important clarification to grasp. What apostasy is, is a revealing, okay? It's, a, it's an exposing of what was always true. It doesn't change something from being true to untrue. It reveals and exposes something that had always been true and you didn't know it. Because the true believer cannot be taken away from Christ. The true believer is safe in his hands. You know the passage, John 10, verses 27 through 28. Christ says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me and listen to these encouraging words. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So right out of the gate, the first clarification to hear is to be reassured that if someone is truly saved, they cannot then be unsaved. But you're probably wondering in the back of your mind, like, well, okay, fine. Then then why is the Bible filled with all these warnings about apostasy? I mean, why warn someone of something that's impossible? If someone can't actually lose their salvation and fall away, then why is the book of Hebrews, for example, filled with all these warnings to not fall away if it can't really happen? Ah, but I think that's a misunderstanding of what's happening in the book of Hebrews. I don't have time to get into that. I just released a commentary on Hebrews, which um, actually just came out of this conference, and I deal with that in there in more detail. But I argue there that the warnings don't prove you can lose your salvation, but rather the warnings are the means by which God keeps his true believers on track. In other words, basically the warnings are a, a, a tool, a means by which God keeps his true followers um, in the race and continuing to run, and not stopping. Putting it yet a different way, true believers will heed the warning, and those who are not true believers will not heed the warning. But just because true believers heed the warning does not make the the warning irrelevant. Warnings are a mechanism by which God can encourage you, spur you, challenge you, keep you in the lanes of running the Christian life. Okay, so first clarification, if you're a true believer, you cannot lose your, your salvation. Here's a second clarification, and I know this is in your mind too, and that is that apostates don't know they're apostates. I think you also just need to reckon with this reality. 
apostates, at some point at least, thought they were true believers. Now, of course, eventually get to the point where they realize they're not. Okay, fair enough. But at some point, they thought they were. So it's not like apostates, when they join the church, say, okay, I'm going through the new members class, and I'm taking the vows, and I'm getting baptized, but I'm looking at my watch the whole time going, well, I've got about three years here until I apostatize. No, they're not saying that, right? They don't know they're going to apostatize. And if we had time, we could go through even the recent stories. You've seen them in the news. We won't go through these more famous authors and speakers who apostatized, but they had spent their whole ministries, whole careers devoted to speaking the truth. Why do all that if you didn't actually seem to think you were a Christian at the time? So here's the reality, is there's people who uh, basically think they're believers and they're not. Apostates don't know they're apostates. Now that does raise an important reality that I think we need to remember as we think about this issue today, and that is some people think they're Christians and they're mistaken. And that's not something we discuss enough in our churches today. I don't know all the historical reasons why, but we've gotten into a place in our church today that if someone professes to be a believer, if someone says they're a believer, we just grant it, assume it's true, and never raise any comments about it. And we also, on top of that, rarely ever ask someone to reflect on their own spiritual condition. What happens then is weeks go by in churches where people preach to a congregation assuming that everyone's a believer and never realizing that maybe some aren't. Now, historically, you might be interested to know that's not been true. Historically, in the church, they were more well aware that the people in their church, there was at least a percentage. We never know what the percentage is, obviously. If you knew that, well, then you'd have special glasses. You could see everyone and know whether they're a Christian or not. So you don't know the percentage. We just know, statistically speaking, there's a chunk of people in the room who aren't really Christians and think they are. And historically, people used to preach with that in mind. The classic example, this is the Puritans. When they preached, they just had that category. They knew that, okay, there's a chunk of people here that need to hear this, that think they're Christians, they need to be, they need to be woken up to the reality that they may not, in fact, be. And I would suggest to you that this is probably a place that the modern church needs to grow. We need to ask, are we really shepherding our flocks if we're not asking those probing questions and challenging people to reflect on their own spiritual condition? And I'm going to come back to that also at the end. Okay, here's a third category of clarification. We're talking about clarifications, and we've made a couple already that if you're really saved, you can't lose it. Apostates don't don't know there are going to be apostates. And here's a third clarification. You can't predict who will be an apostate. I cannot predict who will be an apostate. So here's the reality. It's not just that apostates don't know they're going to be apostates. You and I don't know they're going to be apostates. Imagine if we did, well, we'd have a lot of explaining to do, right? Well, if you knew they were going to be an apostate, well, then why'd you hire them? If you knew they were going to be an apostate, why'd you give them a book contract? Well, if you knew they were going to be an apostate, why'd you do all? Well, you don't know. That's the whole point. But here's the reality. Even though we don't have special glasses where we can look out into a room and know who's really saved and not, oftentimes we think we know. And I want to take a moment to challenge this today. We think, oh, but I could tell. You know, I can just tell. Really? I'm not suggesting that there's never warning signs. Don't misunderstand. In lots of apostasy cases, sometimes there are warning signs. Sometimes there's not. And so you could theoretically look back retrospectively 
and say, oh, now with hindsight 2020, I could have seen it coming. Okay, we can grant all that. But the reality is we tend to be overconfident in our ability to know somebody is really going to apostatize before they do it. And I want to challenge you on that score because the reality is you don't know, and even the disciples didn't know it was going to be Judas. You remember what happened at the Last Supper, right? Jesus said something amazingly bold. One of you, one of you will betray me. You know what didn't happen? They all didn't just say, oh, we all know it's Judas. Let's just get it over with already. We've been playing this game for six months. We, it's obvious he's stealing money out of the coffers, right? He's, he's, he, he's, he's someone who's got it, you know, he loves all these other, you know, it's obviously Judas. Let's just get this over with. No, it's so unclear who it was. Remember what the disciples did? They said, is it, Lord, is it me? It was so unclear that they even wondered if it was themselves. Here's the reality. We can't see it coming. If we could see it coming, why would we do things differently? And that tells us something about apostasy, and that is that it's something that we have to reckon with as a category that we can't sovereignly prevent in advance. Here's the other thing that we need to realize, and this is the payoff of that knowledge, is that you need to realize that someone can look very spiritual and be completely unsaved. They can look like they have all the giftedness and all the abilities and all the passions and not know Jesus at all. In fact, if you look to the scriptures, you're going to find yourself rather disturbed at how spiritual someone can be and prove to be unsaved. I mean, think about Judas for a moment. You know what you never think about is that the disciples were sent out by Jesus to cast out demons, and they came back rejoicing that the demons obeyed Presumably Judas participated in this. Did Judas go out and somehow participate in the casting out of demons? I mean, there's no indication that when he came back from one of these uh, you know, exorcism trips that he said, well, you know, it didn't work for me. I was trying and the other 11 were having a good day and I, just, well, I tried to do it. And no, no, that never comes up. From all we can tell, somehow, mysterious as it is, Judas was participating Think about King Saul as another example of this, about how you can look spiritual, very, very spiritual, and not be saved. We're told in the Old Testament that King Saul prophesied. The Spirit was on him in some way that allowed him to prophesy, so much so that they said even Saul's among the prophets, yet proved to not have a heart that loved God. And in the passage in Matthew 7 that we always read and that strikes fear in our hearts, honestly, what does it say? Listen, listen closely again now with this topic on your mind. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? Probably a reference to miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Don't think you can know that that person, because of all the privileges and all the externals, is definitely got it together with God. Sometimes it's just not true. And also, by the way, don't make the opposite mistake, which is to say, that person will never become a Christian. That person could never know Jesus because of all these things. No, God has a way of breaking our expectations. So the person we think will never become a Christian becomes a Christian, and the person we're absolutely convinced is holy and spiritual and certainly a Christian maybe proves not to be. 
And then God reminds us that he is sovereign over the salvation of humans. One last clarification as we look at these nuances, and this is an important clarification too, and that's this clarification. People can apostatize in different ways. Not every apostasy situation is identical. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Now, of course, you might think that. I mean, everybody seems to now do it on Instagram, right? So it's like, well, maybe that's the way you apostatize. You go on Instagram, and you make some statement, and you, you, know, you look out at a sunset, and you say, I'm starting in a new direction now, and, and you, you have like a little playbook you run, right? And that you think, well, that's how apostasy works. But you know, that's not necessarily how it works. Not all apostasies are the same. Some apostasy is very blatant, very, very plain. Like, I no longer believe anything. It's all rubbish. I'm done. I'm going this way. And that would be the most obvious kind of apostasy. And I'm sure we could think of examples in the world of people who did that. It's a 180 in every, every sense. But you can also apostatize in other ways. Some people still call themselves Christians, even though they've effectively apostatized. They still retain the label. In other words, what they're really saying is, I'm no longer that kind of Christian. Now I'm this kind of Christian. Now, those are complicated scenarios because it always depends on what they mean by this kind of Christian. But if the new this kind of Christian is so different from any historical definition of Christianity, then even though they verbally still say they're Christians, they're now following a version of Christianity that's not actually Christianity, and that too is a form of apostatizing. And then you could also apostatize morally. Some people insist they're Christians, still claim to be Christians, still talk like a Christian, and they've chosen a life that's so radically unchristian that you have sort of no choice but to say, I know you're saying this, but your life morally is showing that you have now rejected any reasonable definition of the Christian faith. That's also a way to apostatize. Okay, so what have we done in these first two points? We've laid out a definition, right? And then I've given you some nuances, some clarifications, some rounding out so that we're um, understanding this issue better. Now, how do we respond to this? Wow, I wish I had a whole second talk, which I don't. In fact, even as I look at my clock, this talk's winding down. Let me just suggest a couple ways to think about responding to apostasy in your lives. Sort of one way to think about it is how do I respond to apostasy out there? And then the second way is how do I respond to apostasy in here? So just a few reflections. First, the apostasy out there, how do you handle it? What do you do? Well, you had that person in your head a minute ago, and I'm sure you're wondering, how do I, what do I do? They've, they've, they've betrayed the faith. They've, they've betrayed me. You might be frustrated. You might be angry. Uh, you might want to lash out. And some of that is understandable, especially if it's a person you were close to that seems to have completely turned their back, not only on Christianity, but effectively also, therefore, on you and your whole world and all your friends and so on. It's always tempting to think that that there's a little pride that seeps in when we see it happen. We're like, well, you know, if they had just been more like me, they wouldn't have apostatized, right? Or if they just had been, you know, better at those spiritual disciplines and I, you know, kind of like I do, then they would have been fine. Or, you know, I saw it coming. We give ourselves that credit too, right? Like, well, you know, I, if you, we, we saw this a mile away and we sort of take that sort of superior ground as if, you know, we kind of knew it all along. But let me suggest another course of action for you. One word that just needs to be used with apostates is the word compassion. 
You know, is apostasy the right thing to do? Of course not. I think that's clear. But what is true of apostasy, it's very sad, very difficult, and very painful for the people who are enduring it. Even if you could say, oh, it's their own fault. You might want to go back to that position of pride again. Well, they're to blame. They're the ones that did it. Why should I feel bad for them? No, that's not the Christian way. Does Christ not show compassion on us even when we do things we shouldn't do? So in one sense, compassion, sympathy is certainly appropriate for those we know who are apostatizing. Another thought as you think about or respond to those sort of out there apostatizing is, is my encouragement to don't give up on them. Sometimes we have the sort of, you know, wash my hands of it, you know, okay, that's it, you know, I, you know they, they betrayed me, betrayed my whole world, that's it, you know, it's their own fault, I'm not going to feel bad about it, out you go, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But I would suggest to you that also is not the Christian response. The Christian response is to do what Paul did as he wept over what effectively was an unbelieving Israel who had rejected the Messiah, and you could argue in one sense had exhibited a form of apostasy, and Paul says, oh, what I would give for my own countrymen to turn and believe. And that we need to think about how we pray for, intercede for, long for repentance in those that apostatize, calling them back repeatedly to the cross, um, calling them back to the gospel that they now seemingly have rejected. Now, of course, you might think, well, it's a waste of time. They've apostatized. They've made their mind up. But God can do almighty things, and there are amazing stories of how he can turn hearts. So you keep praying, knowing that the hearts of humans are always in the hands of God, not in our hands. Of course, on a human level, it's impossible. That's an obvious point, right? On a human level, good luck changing a person's heart, but it's not out of God's plan and out of his power. Don't give up. What about in our own life? Here's a few thoughts for you on how to respond to apostasy in your life heart. And notice that this is a key category. The mistake would be to hear a talk like this and think about everybody else that's either apostatized or that you think probably will and how much they needed to have heard this talk and maybe you'll send them the link later. Ah, but isn't it true that we need to reflect on this theme? Some suggested reflections on this theme. First, take the warnings seriously. Here's the number one mistake I get all the time. People will hear the warning passages in Hebrews about apostasy. They say, well, I don't have to heed the warning passages or listen to the warning passages because they don't apply to me because I'm a real Christian. Of course, I make the point that the apostate could have said the exact same thing before they apostatized. No, the warnings apply to you even if you're really saved because God will use them if you take them seriously as a way to keep you on track and to keep you running the race. So don't dismiss the warnings under the rubric of, well, you know, it doesn't really matter because it's all determined and I'm either saved or not. No, heed the warning. It's a means that God uses to preserve his saints. Second reflection for you or response for you in your own heart is take some time to seriously reflect on your spiritual condition. It's weird to say that, isn't it, at a conference like this? These are the gospel coalition. I mean, who's going to pay all the money and take all the time to go here that's not a Christian? And I would say, generally, I agree with you, but it's no different than a church. Everybody here or listening online would, would, would think, well, you know, obviously, if I'm going to do all this, I must be saved. Well, don't think so. A lot of people go to church and aren't saved. A lot of people go to conferences and aren't saved. 
Take some time to reflect on your spiritual health. If I asked you today what your blood pressure was or your cholesterol or what your latest doctor report is, you probably know those facts, but do you know what your metrics are in your spiritual health? I'm amazed how introspective we are of, of about just about everything but that. Paul won't, won't let us off the hook so easily. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, just let these words sink in for a moment. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And that is something that we all probably need to do better. And here's my final encouragement as a response to all of us as we think about apostasy. And this is really the antidote, if you will, to apostasy. How do you keep running the race? You keep your eye on the finish line. Worst thing when you run is to look around you. The worst thing when you run is to look to the runner next to you. Even in the Greco-Roman world, when you ran, you looked at the finish line. And who is waiting for you at the finish line? Christ himself. The wonderful thing about the book of Hebrews, and of course the national conference in a couple days is all about the book of Hebrews, but as you know because you've read the book, the wonderful thing about the book of Hebrews is it lays out that finish line wonderfully. The antidote, the cure for apostasy is a consistent, deep apprehension of the beauty and reward that is Christ. He is your great reward. If you talk about how much your side hurts and how much you can't breathe and how your ankle hurts as you run the Christian race, you're probably going to end up stopping. But you keep your eyes on the glories, the beauty, the magnificence of your reward. And your reward is not just heaven. Your reward is not just a place. Your reward is a person. And once you realize that that is what's key, is focusing on a person, that will revolutionize the way you live the Christian life. You know what's interesting about Judas is that his relationship with Jesus was so impersonal. Have you ever noticed that before? He never sees Jesus as a person. Jesus is an idea. Jesus is a messianic claimant. Jesus is a pathway to the kingdom and the riches and the sitting at your right hand and all the things you might want. He wants what Jesus can give him. There's no indication he wants Jesus. How do you not stop running? You've got to keep your eye on the finish line. So even today, and I trust that everyone in this room really loves Jesus and is genuinely a follower of him, but even if that's you and you really do love Jesus, keep focusing on him as you run. As I draw this to a close, um, a recent book I just wrote is actually in a weird sense about this, about not losing the faith. Some of you might have heard of my, my book, just actually was released this week called Surviving Religion 101, um, the subtitle is Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. It's how, this isn't in the title, of course, how, it's basically how not to apostatize in college, right? Here's the effective title of it. But um, I'm excited about this because I deal with a lot of these same themes in there about how to keep your focus on truth uh, in the Christian life. The RTS book table was kind as I, as I walked away to this talk today. They said, tell everybody at the talk that the first 10 people at the RTS booth after the talk that say they were at the talk since you're here, you can do that. You can get a free copy, uh, a free signed copy, actually, of the book. Um, so just uh, don't, uh, you know, trip over someone on the way over there. Um, but uh, 10 copies if you're interested in that. So thanks for being here. I'm going to stay up front for those who want to chat, but let me close us in a word of prayer. Lord, grateful for this theme, grateful for these men and women who love you. Lord, keep us focused on the glories of Christ, that that might keep us running Help us understand and have compassion on those who struggle with apostasy. And Lord, just encourage us that you do keep those you love. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.